industrial design journey. Hey everyone, this is ID Journey. I'm Lane and Evan and I are industrial design students looking to approach our senior capstone as thoroughly as possible. Today we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Scott Powell. He's a marketing professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. Uh, how are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, so first of all, talk to me a little bit about what the marketing program at Grove City looks like. Sure. So the marketing program is part of what we call the business program. business program has three separate departments and seven different majors. So we have marketing management, accounting, finance, entrepreneurship, uh, biz, uh, business analysis, and, and uh, what's the other one? International marketing. Couldn't think there for a second. Oh, great. So what are those students? What are they doing for their senior projects? So everybody in the business program, regardless of which of those seven majors you're, you are in, you have to take a class called business policy and strategy. And what that is, it's kind of a senior capstone class that takes students from each of the majors puts them into a team and has them analyze a specific company, look at them for weaknesses, strengths, get some recommendations on how they can improve. And it's really neat because you kind of work with students from all the other majors, so everybody has kind of this management team approach. So, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so when those students, as they're going through that, they're actually getting to collaborate with people from different schools and are, do they have any industrial design people on those teams ever? We don't have an industrial design major. Um, we do have specific classes like new product development, and mm. we also have design classes, but we don't have an industrial design major. Okay. And are the business students taking those classes? Yeah, a lot of them are. There's so many different ways you can go. Um, like, in my, in my mind, the kind of the connection between marketing and industrial design is I have a very simple definition of marketing. It's finding out what people want and giving it to them. Like when I was in grad school at Pitt, I had this lengthy, lengthy definition. It was like a page long what marketing is and somewhere in between, you know, this mutual collaborative uh, exchange of benefits. I fell sound asleep. I'm like, this is the longest definition I've ever <laughs> heard. So all my students can tell you, I really look at marketing as finding out what people want, which is largely market research, right. and then giving it to them, which is often called the marketing mix, the four P's, the four C's. Um, and so intelligent, I'm sorry, industrial design to me is kind of the, the finding out what people want side. What should this product look like? Um, I'm a strong believer in what Steve Jobs said, that it's more than just the appearance or the feel of a product. It's how it works. It's the function. So what is a product that people really want? And mm. once we understand that, how do we give it to them? Yeah, definitely. And that takes like a, a knowledge of who the users are and their needs. So how do you recommend that students approach uh, making a message and like crafting their message for the consumer? Yeah, I think the first, the first thing is making sure that you really understand who your consumer is, who is my target market. Um, I think there are really three ways to get people to buy. I, I teach my students, if you want me to buy something, there's three ways you can get me to buy. Assuming I have a need or a want for this product, I'm either going to buy the best because I want something that's going to last, it's going to work well. Um, other times, I either don't want to pay for the best or I'm not able to. So you could say, well, we're as good as this other company is, but we're cheaper. Um, and then sometimes people don't want to be the same as everyone else. So for example, everybody wears Nikes. And if you don't want to be a Nike clone, well, Puma's for you. So trying to figure out, am I the best, am I the cheaper, or am I the different? I think that's the most important part. And then once you understand that position, <coughs> excuse me, it's, it's all about differentiation. How can I be different than the other options that are out there in this category? 
So once you figure out who is my customer, kind of what's my position and what's my differentiation, I think the best way to develop a message is to keep it really simple. Mm. I have all these little mantras that I, I put on stickers and I give to my students, but one of them is simplicity sells. Mm. Simplicity sells and complexity confuses. And when you confuse customers, they're not going to buy from you. So the best thing I say, I could say is know your customer, know your position, how do you differentiate, and then develop a really simple message that people mm. understand. Yeah, and simplicity is something that we talked about last episode with right. Ryan Dowd. Yeah. Um, so as these students are learning how to craft this message, is there a mistake that you see like kind of pop up over and over again? Yeah, I think it's really hard to create a simple message. Um, that I think that the tendency is to try to say too much mm. or to say something that someone else says. It's not distinctive. For example, one of my, my uh, students, former students, has he runs a big trucking company. And we're working on right now a campaign to help him attract drivers because there's kind of a, a shortage on truck drivers mm -hmm. these days. And so we're really trying to figure out what is a simple differentiating message that we can deliver without saying everything. Because when we look at his competitors, they're talking about, you know, you're home on weekends, it's good pay, it's good benefits. Or you can't say all that. That's confusing. So how can we kind of differentiate with a really simple message? That's a really good point. And do you see like big companies making those same mistakes? I do. Either saying the same thing, you know, and in college, I was, I was the marketing director for Grove City College for 14 years. Mm. And I went off and I started to develop an ad. And when I looked at it, I'm like, I'm saying the same thing as every other school is saying. You know, we've got great faculty. Well, what school doesn't have great faculty? Well, we've got bright students. Well, every school does, right? So how can I look at what everyone else is saying and find something different to say. I think very few companies do a really good job of that, um, of differentiating in a, in a simple, easy to understand way. Yeah, I mean, especially in this age of like Amazon, where you have access to thousands of products all at once, it's hard to like make a decision. And oftentimes you're going off of who has the best product shots. Yeah. Or who has the most five-star ratings, which is, you know, that's a pretty good metric to go by. It is, absolutely. So how, how have you seen social media change marketing? I think it's really changed a lot. Um, I'm, I'm an old guy, right? I've been in Grove City for 30 years. And for 14 years um, as a marketing director, that most of that was before um, social media was even really around. And so I was in the old school of print and TV and radio. Social media has changed everything so much. I think... I think it's really accentuated the need for simplicity because our attention spans are so short. I mean, I'm just going to flick you away if you don't catch my attention real quickly. Um, I think it's been great for small businesses because they can leverage those tools to reach a big audience. Um, in addition to being a professor, I'm also a partner and CMO of a little startup. Uh, it's called Media Relay. And so small companies now have the ability to, to use those tools pretty easily to reach large audiences. So I think while marketing strategy stays pretty much the same, the tactics change all the time. I mean, a couple of years ago, we never even heard of TikTok, right? Right. So we kind of came out of nowhere and just revolutionized the way people advertise. Mm. I think the whole move to influencer marketing is different too. You know, we're following our favorite people on Instagram or YouTube and we just listen to what they say. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it was funny. I was reading, um, some ads from 200 years ago 
uh, or 150 years ago, and the way that the ads are structured are totally different. It's this whole argument of this yeah. product has this issue, but we fix it this way. And so, yeah, I think you're definitely right about the attention spans being so much shorter. Um, so, and you mentioned that like social media, although it creates that challenge of attention span, it also provides a benefit, which is market research. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. So how do you do that? How do you segment all of the data that you have and compile it into something that companies can use? Yeah, I think it's really difficult. One of the, the, the fastest growing fields in marketing is actually people who can make sense of big data, right? The, the quant jockeys that can kind of look at this mass mass amount of information that we've gathered and make sense of it. How do we pull a couple actionable insights out of this giant database? Um, I, I read something the other day, I can't remember who said it, but he said companies should be data informed, not data driven. I think if you just look at the numbers, you can't always tell why people are doing what they've done. I mean, I can tell how many people have clicked on an ad, how long they've been there, what pages they've looked at or information on my site, but I don't know why. I have no idea why. So I think data is really good at telling you what, but it's not as good at telling you why. Hmm. And so I think a lot of the old school techniques, you know, focus groups, interviews, um, even if they're virtual focus groups online, can give you a lot of insight that you'll never get from just the numbers alone. Hmm. That's great. Um, so we talk about attention spans being shorter and I think the message is also kind of changing from being this argument about product to more of an emotional appear, right. uh, appeal. So mm -hmm. these days, do you think it's more important that you have a really solid product or that you market really well? I think it's both. I think if you don't have a solid product, you're not going to fool many people very long. Um, they're going to flame you on, on the internet so this thing's a piece of junk and no one's going to buy it. I mean, it's like you just said, we look at reviews, right? right? So if you look at this and it was like, this thing's terrible, you're not going to be around long. So the base of the pyramid is having a really good product. Mm. That said, that's kind of table stakes. Most athletic shoes, I, I listened to the podcast from last week, most athletic shoes are decent quality, right? right? And so it's much more about the emotional connection. Do I like this? Does this how does this make me feel? What's the brand status of this? It's not that shoes aren't functional and I've got to buy this one or else my shoes are going to fall apart. It's how do I make that emotional connection? And I think that's where uh, marketing comes in. But let me back up for a second because I, I think both industrial design and I think marketing are both a little bit misunderstood. Hmm. Marketing today basically means to most people advertising or selling. Sorry about that. Um, marketing is, in my opinion, everything that the everything a company does is seen through the eyes of the customer. In fact, that's almost a direct quote from Peter Drucker. Marketing involves the, the research, the development of the product, the pricing strategy, um, the distribution strategy, the advertising and promotion. So I think most people, when they hear marketing, they think advertising or sales. I think that's a wrong perception. And when people hear design, oh, you, you make this look nice or you make this feel nice, um, and that's doesn't take into account the function, right? So let me give you two examples because I, I was thinking about this podcast in the past week or so. I've had a couple products that I thought weren't designed the best. Mm -hmm. So I bought a weed eater for my house before I left, and it is totally designed for a right-handed person. There's this little safety button that you have to kind of push in with your right hand, and the mm -hmm. assumption is that everybody's right-handed, and it's really hard for me to use. And I'm a lefty, and I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking it wouldn't be really hard knowing that 
10% of the population is left-handed to have made this switch a little different. I actually had to get duct tape to put around to hold the safety button in so I can keep using the weed eater. I'm wow. Like, why did they design this that way? So I'm on vacation. It's fun to be recording this on vacation. The car that I rented has a big touch screen. Everything is touch except the volume. And there's a physical knob in the center of the touch screen that you have to turn for the volume. And you cannot turn that without hitting one of the touch buttons that puts you on like XM. So you got to hit the button to go three times back. Just every single time I'm like, you know, a surgeon trying to change. I'm like, who, who designed this? This does not function well. So I think having a broad understanding of what marketing is and how it really encompasses uh, industrial design, which is a making a product that functions really, really well. I think, I think that helps people understand better. Yeah, I definitely feel you on the left-handed thing. I'm also left-handed. Are you good? Yeah, and so I remember growing up and having these scissors, all the scissors right-handed, and so I'm trying to cut paper, and it's tearing it, and it's messing it up, uh, and it was so frustrating. So now I have one piece, like one left-handed pair of scissors, and I keep it basically in my backpack, so yep. I'm never without it. Yep. Um, and something that you talked about, like marketing is more than just sales and advertising, it goes into the design of the product as well. And that's something that Evan and I encountered uh, during our shoe workshop that we did with Ryan. Um, we learned a lot about how, you know, the, the price point is a huge part of the marketing yeah. and understanding your demographic. And that informs, okay, well, I can only do these different types of construction. Otherwise, the price is going to go over and the consumers no longer going to have access to it. Right. So... Yeah, marketing and industrial design, I know it's like a little bit strange talking on an industrial design podcast to someone who's not in industrial design. Right. But they're hugely intertwined, I think. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the things that inform the design of a product is market research, for sure. Um, so have you seen you know, marketing that doesn't live up to the product that it's advertising. Yeah, I think we've all encountered that. Whether it's a movie and the trailer looks great and you go and they've basically taken every exciting piece of the movie and put it in the trailer and the rest of it's just terrible. Or it's something that's been so hyped in the advertising that you have these unrealistic expectations and it falls far short. Mm. Um, I think pretty much everyone's had that experience. Yeah, and have you seen it the other way as well? Yeah, I have. Um, and that's kind of one of the mantras in, in our little business, Media Relay. We're actually bulk book buyers and resellers. We process about 100,000 units a month. Um, and so our mantra is under promise and over deliver. So when you're selling used books, you have to grade them. Is it acceptable? Is it good? Very good? Like new? We undersell everything. If it's a really nice book, we call it acceptable. If it's like pristine, we say it's good. And so we get a lot of really favorable reviews on Amazon and eBay where we sell those things because people, they, well, they said this was acceptable. This thing looks brand new. Mm. I, I don't think there are enough companies that do that. I think the temptation is to make as much money as you can by making this product look unrealistically good. When you were a kid, did you ever see any toys advertised on TV and you're like, I gotta have this thing, and then you get it and it was like so disappointing. And oh, everything. I'm sure, I'm sure. Especially, you know, the, the fishing rod that yeah. had the rocket at the end of it. Yeah. I'm sure none of those ever worked. No. Nope. Yeah. Um, so, do you see like the rise of these different uh, movements or these different uh, strategies to marketing? There's like the Apple, which is big, exciting announcements and they are... Uh, putting out, you know, ads in the traditional spaces mm -hmm. or, you know, spaces that are new but common like YouTube or like television. 
Um, or And you contrast that with uh, a marketing strategy like Tesla or another one of these companies that's kind of going uh, guerrilla almost, and they're trying to create underground social movements. Um, do you teach your students both ways? And how do you how do you compare like the success of both of them? How do you decide between them? Yeah, absolutely. I think it really depends again on who, what product do I have? Who's my target audience and what is their media? So if I was trying to sell something to your parents, I'm certainly going to do it in a, di in a different way than I would sell it to you, right? I'm guessing your parents are not as technologically savvy into TikTok and all the social media and Instagram as you are. So I think the message, the product and the market you're trying to reach kind of dictate the way that you uh, promote that product. Apple and Tesla that you mentioned, I think they've both carved out the best position. We talked about best, cheaper, and different. And so I think the best has to have the perception, because marketing is largely a battle of perceptions, right? right. It's, I teach my students, it's a battle of perceptions, not products. There have been some really good products, the Microsoft Zoom. Do you ever remember here the Microsoft Zoom? Microsoft Zoom was launched to be the iPod killer. Nobody ever had a Zoom. This was a multi-billion dollar disaster. It was a well-designed a well MP3 player, but Apple was perceived as being better. Mm. So, and that's what I try and stress. At our school, we have the arts and letters side, which is where marketing resides. We also have the science and technology school, which is where engineering resides. And I try to build a bridge because I, I, I've established a bridge with the engineering faculty that says, hey, I don't know how to build an iPad. You guys do. You know how to design that and build that. But I would argue that you don't know how really to market a product. And we kind of need each other. I know I need you because I don't have the engineering skills, but you kind of think that marketing is common sense. And so I give them examples of like the Microsoft Zoom, which was this, this MP3 player that had functionality that the iPod did not, but it was clunkier. It didn't function. It wasn't as clean. It wasn't as elegant. And it wasn't perceived as being as good. If you, if I say Colgate, what, what comes to mind? Uh, the red, big red banner at the end of the commercials, probably. Okay, so Colgate, that brand, what kind of product do you think of? If I say Colgate. Toothpaste. Okay, how about lasagna? Probably not. They launched lasagna. Wow. Colgate actually made Colgate lasagna. It might have been the best lasagna ever made, but nobody bought it because you look at this and you're like, what in the world is a lasagna coming from a toothpaste company for? So back to your question, marketing is a battle of perceptions. And if the product, it's not the product that's best designed that wins, it's the one that has the best perception. And so back to Apple, they're perceived as being the best. They're the slickest, they have the best ads, they're the easiest to use, most aesthetically pleasing. So to have a very charismatic launch with the big, you know, here, let's put the lights down. Here comes, you know, Tim Cook, and that all fits with the best. If you are Samsung, Samsung's a value play. Samsung phones sell because they're cheaper than Apple. They're as good as Apple in many regards, maybe better, who knows? But people buy them because they either don't want to spend that much money on an Apple phone, or because they don't have that much money. Samsung is really a value play, and so to have that kind of a launch for their products, it just doesn't it doesn't have the same perception. Mm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, definitely. And going back to the Zune, uh, you know, the, the Zune, it looks a lot like an iPod, but it's just, it's black, shiny, 
like most other yep. technology that was coming out at the time. So yep. do you think they had a differentiation problem as well? Yeah, they did. And I think Steve Jobs was one of the first people to realize that not just function, but also the appearance. I mean, you're probably too uh, young to remember, but computers used to be these gray towers that, that sat under your desk, and they were all rectangular and square and, and the same color. And Steve Jobs is like, well, why don't we just make these you know, bright blue, neon blue, and round the edges and make you know the mouse... And, and they just jumped off the shelf. So it was not, it, you almost need design to get people's attention, but it's the functionality of the product that really sells it. This thing mm. is easy to use, I get this. Right, and it's the same thing with marketing, right? Where you need the, the advertising to grab people's attention, but the product has to keep them yes. there. Yep. Um, so what are, some, what are some successes that were like unlikely that you've seen? Um, products that were kind of unlikely successes. I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot uh, here. I'm just trying to think. Um, one of the ones, honestly, I mentioned TikTok earlier, but that thing kind of just took the market by storm. I mean, we already had all the entrenched social media, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. And right. TikTok kind of came out of the blue. And I think it was mainly the PR from these influencers, people that, that uh, young people thought were cool and were using this, and all of a sudden it just became a, f a phenomenon. I don't really even remember seeing any ads for it. So marketing no. doesn't necessarily have to be advertising. A lot of the really best marketing is PR-driven, mm. word of mouth. Hey, this product is so cool, you got to try this thing. Right, and I think that's probably why the influencer thing is so big right now, right. because it's both casting a wide net, but it's also personal. Yeah, absolutely. And PR is always believable. I mean, if you saw an ad for, let's go back to movies, and you saw an ad for a movie and it looked really great, and you're like, I'm going to go see this. But your best friend said, hey, I saw it. It's terrible. Are you going to believe your friend or are you going to believe the ad? You're going to believe your friend, right? So the power of PR, and there's really a great book called The Rise of PR and the Fall, the Fall of Advertising and the Rise of PR. And that's the more important part of marketing these days. Hmm. So how do marketing firms, how do they decide what influencers to go after and uh, why, why are these influencers commanding so much attention? I think influencers command attention because they're typically someone that the target market resonates with. It's someone that they like, it's someone that they believe, that think is credible. Um, so probably the premier two spokespeople when I was in college would be, I would guess, Michael Jordan and probably Tiger Woods. Right, And so Tiger Woods, if he's selling me golf clubs, I'm going to listen to him because he knows a heck of a lot more about golf clubs than I do. But Buick paid him all kinds of money to be a spokesperson for Buick cars. And Buick is perceived as an old person's car. And despite the fact that they paid Tiger Woods millions of dollars, sales didn't go up because no young person thought that Tiger really drives a Buick. I mean, really, he's a multi-millionaire, he wins this. Do you think he's getting in a Buick Regal to go home? No, he probably has a Ferrari or a Porsche. So he's got to be believable in that product category. Mm. So it's really, it's not important just that companies get an influencer to market their product. It's also important that they choose the right one. Yeah, and that it's believable that this person is not just a hired gun that's just pitching this product because he's getting paid millions of dollars. You've got to believe that that influencer knows something about this product and really does believe it's good and use it. Hmm. I, I have a question sure. if I jump in real quick. Yeah. Um, so 
some people, and you ask them, like, what's the first word that comes to their mind about marketing? Some would say it's like manipulation. Yeah. Yep. People feel like marketing can be used to, you know, kind of bring out some of the worst parts, like natural human behavior, like, you know, shiny thing I want yep. <laughs> um, yeah. type of behavior. So what are your thoughts on that type of, uh, either that type of marketing or as the responsibility of a Christian in marketing yep. to kind of balance the idea of selling a product and, um, you know, doing something moral? Yeah, absolutely. Great question, Evan. And that's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, it's interesting when I meet people and they ask me what I do, I'm like, oh, I'm a college professor, you know, big smile. Oh, that's great. What do you teach? And I say marketing and it turns into a frown immediately. <laughs> And uh, I, I specifically remember one time I was at a new church and someone came up to me. This woman came up to me and said, oh, Dr. Potts, so nice to meet you. And I heard you teach at Grove City College. I'm like, yeah. And she, she, she's like, well, what do you teach? And I said, marketing. And she stopped and she looked at me and she said, I thought you were a Christian. And, and I'm like, well, I thought I was too. What do you know that I don't know? You know? <laughs> and so I started to think, well, why would she say such a thing? Why do people frown when they hear that I teach marketing, and because it's just what you said, Evan, they think of it as manipulative. Well, you, you would say anything and lie to me and pressure me just to get me to buy something. So I teach all of my students that marketing is finding out what people want and giving it to them. It's things that improve their life, not figuring out what I have and trying to force it on you. Right? Um, my, whole dis my, my doctoral dissertation was on what's called the dark side of marketing. The dark side of marketing is materialism. And if I am trying to get you to find your identity and worth and happiness in things, I'm heading down the road to materialism. And that's something that as a Christian and a marketer, I do not want to be involved with. Um, some of the more egregious ones are, I saw an ad on TV not long ago that said, you know, it's for a credit card. And it said, no credit, bad credit, we've got a credit card for you. Well, why do people have no credit or bad credit? It's because they don't know how to handle their finances. So basically what this company is doing is it's selling them a shovel to dig themselves into a deeper hole. And I think that's just wrong. Right. Definitely. And I mean, so when you're marketing a product or when you're advertising mm -hmm. a, par a product that you've already kind of done the research on yep. and you're trying to convince the consumer that you're going to improve their life, right. how do you balance that argument against the one which is this product will make you high status, will make you happy, uh, those sorts of messages that are kind of the dark side of marketing like you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think being a marketer, and, and when we talk about this aspect of marketing, we're basically talking about promotion, the advertising and selling side. I think that you have this dual role. You are an agent of your company. You're trying to help your company make money. But if you are a person of faith, if you're a Christian, you also need to have the customer's best interest at heart. So I could not be part of a marketing campaign that I didn't believe was going to help customers or that the majority of them were probably going to suffer in some way financially uh, emotionally from maybe physically from the use of this product so it's just it would be product specific to me but it's a role that so when you if you were in my classes at Grove City in my principals classes where I'm teaching the basics of marketing strategy I keep coming back to the question, what does it mean to be a Christian and a marketer? Well, it means that I'm going to put a product out that actually does what I say it does. I'm not going to objectify women in my advertising. I'm not going to price gouge just because I can. I'm going to be an ethical 
marketer in terms of helping people meet needs and wants, not necessarily create them or make them materialistic. Mm. When they get to the upper level classes that I teach, I'm asking them to think about what does it mean to be a Christian and a consumer? Am I buying this product so that I can feel better about myself um, or so that I can show that I'm cooler than other people? Well, I'm not sure that that's the right reason to be buying products either. And it definitely seems like there are certain products categories like uh, perfumes and colognes mm -hmm. where you see those advertisements and you know, they're absolutely ridiculous. There's nothing really about the product uh, aside from this is going to make you an attractive person right. to people. Right, and Axe is one of the most egregious ones, right? Every teen boy wants to bathe himself in Axe because he thinks he's immediately going to be this magnet for attractive women. And I think that's selling a lie to young boys, and it's objectifying women. So I find that really offensive. I, I don't like that kind of marketing. Right. So I have a little bit of a question because I noticed that Lane and I, just subconsciously, we keep on going, mostly... Uh, in my thoughts and questions I've been thinking about, I keep on going to the advertising side right. of marketing just automatically. Yep. That's, that's just what we know. That's what we're familiar with. What's one part of marketing that you see related to industrial design that isn't just advertising? Because I know you mentioned it earlier, but I want to get it reiterated so we can kind of frame the rest of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the industrial design part of marketing falls, so there's this rubric um, in marketing, known as the four P's. I don't know if you guys had a principles of marketing class where they taught you product, price, promotion, and place. Um, ID comes squarely in my mind under the first P, product. How do we design a product that actually meets a need and it functions well? I think that's really where it fits in, and that's the base of the marketing pyramid. Do we really have a good product that's going to help people and that they want to buy? If so, that's when you move up to the other P's. Okay, what are people willing to pay for this? That's going to dictate, as you mentioned in the shoe, that's going to dictate what the construction can be, what the materials are be, because we, if we price it too high, no one's going to buy it. So once we have developed this really good product, we've researched what people want, we've prototyped it, um, we've we figured out this is what it's going to be, the next question is, you know, what are people willing to pay for this? Third is, how do we distribute this? Is this something that's going to sell in Dick's Sporting Goods? Is this going to be something we sell online? Is this an Amazon product? What is the distribution channel? And then finally, once you've got those figured out, how do we inform people through promotion? Here it is. This is what it does. This is where you can get it. I don't know if that answers your question, Emma. No, that does. It does, absolutely. Yeah. Just kind of understanding which compartments, because industrial design needs to take into account all those things. It needs to take into account price. It needs to take into account, you know, the person that they're designing it for. They need to take into account the, uh, 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 the last one. <laughs> <laughs> the promotion. I lost, uh, promotion. Yeah. So, yeah, that's something that you need to keep in mind the whole time as you go throughout the process. And now with places like Amazon, uh, you know, Walmart, a lot of brands now are kind of hidden within brands. Right. Right. So you go on to Walmart to buy a you name it product. Yeah. How can brands and whatever products still reflect their brand even though they're just a tab amongst a wash of other similar products? Well, for example, you mentioned Walmart, and one of their brands is the Equate brand. You know, whether you go into Walmart to buy some shampoo and here's head and shoulders on the shelf, and right beside it is a bottle of Equate that looks exactly the same, and it's cheaper. 
So that fits well with Walmart's strategy because Walmart is a cheap place. When I say Walmart, you think affordable. I go there because it's cheap. I'm going to get a bunch of stuff cheap. So their sub-brand, their own brand, their private store brand of Equate fits really well with their position, which is being at least a cheap place to buy products. Um, other companies like Target. Target is selling basically the same things that Walmart sells, but it's viewed as being cooler, right? It's Target. And we've got kind of this upscale version of cheap stuff. And we've got Archer Farms. And that's one of their cheap, their private label brands. But it has a, has a, a perception of being a little bit cooler. Um, I read a study a while back that said Kmart, Walmart, and Target all started within like a year of each other. But they've had such different levels of success, right? Walmart has positioned itself as the cheap. And Target has been kind of the, the better or the best in terms of household items. Um, even though they all three of those stores sell roughly 95% of the same products, we have very different perceptions of those stores. I mean, right. I don't even know if Kmart's still around. I think they're tough. I don't think so. You know, their tagline should be... They, they are, are they? they are. Their, their website's okay, still up. So their website's still up. I don't know if they have any... Um, I don't know either. Maybe their tagline could be, we're still here. But um, <laughs> the three of them, all three of those stores sell 95% of the same exact products, and their prices are all pretty similar. But Kmart's on life support. Walmart's, you know, cruising along, and Target is cooler. Right. So it's all perception. And, I mean, something that you talked about is one of the reasons why Evan and I even started this podcast. It's because we want to figure out what is the right problem to solve. And so marketing, you teach your students to yep. try to find the right problem to solve. Yep. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Um, so... When we're looking for the right problem, um, what are some market trends that you see? What are the problems that people are having that aren't being met? Um, I think, I think, in America, our problems are so small these days. I mean, we all have plenty to eat, and you know, most of us have decent transportation and decent clothing. So most of our needs are relatively small ones because we have so many options. Right. Just so many options. So. I think one of the problems that I see these days is, is the proliferation of brands. It's just, how do I choose? I mean, we're on vacation, I go to buy a tube of toothpaste, and there's 50 different kinds of toothpaste. Do we really need 50 different kinds and brands of toothpaste? I mean, there's a whole aisle. And I think there's so many that it just confuses people. So I think the most pressing problem consumers have today is how do I choose from among all the choices? I mean, I don't know if you've done this, but if you've ever gone to to Amazon to look up a product and you get overwhelmed by all the choices and you're just scrolling down, I want to buy a garden hose. Mm -hmm. A hose, for crying out loud. And there's like a thousand of them on Walmart. And I find myself spending an hour trying to pick a, do I need to spend an hour to pick a garden hose? There's flexible in this. And so I think one of the hardest problems for consumers these days is how do I make a wise selection from the proliferation of choices? Mm -hmm. I think the problem for marketers is how do we stand out from all of the options? And I think the answer in both cases is simplicity. What is going to be a really simple message that we can show that our product has some functional or design superiority and, and, and give you a perception that this is the right product? Mm. I think you're right um, and I think that with all of these different brands this proliferation of choices as you've called it I think that 
maybe excess is just as much of a problem these days in America as, you know, not having enough. And that consumers have too much, they don't know what to do with it, or they have too many choices. Um, so do you see people trying to solve that problem of excess? Yeah, I think the whole minimalized, you know, the minimalist movement that's coming in tiny houses and we're just going to downsize, we don't need all of this stuff, I think that's a reaction um, to two things. One, being overwhelmed by the proliferation of choice, and secondly, just saying, really, boy, this is really pretty wasteful. Do I really need all of this stuff? Do I have to consume all of this, or could I be a better steward of my resources and the planet's resources and, and simplify a bit? So I think, mm. I think that's a big reason it's happening. Yeah, and that plays right into what you were talking about with simplicity, is do the most with the least. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a question come to mind. It's kind of funny that we're industrial designers that don't want people to just have too much stuff and you're a marketer well you know by yeah, trade and right. training and everything that doesn't want people in, in the same light you don't want them to have too much stuff which is in direct competition with other people that don't have the, necessarily the same moral restraint their only um you know judgment of right and wrong is the bottom line you know the yeah, dollar absolutely um how how do you achieve success when success is normally um, kind of based on dollars amount when actually what we think is more valuable is just a person's livelihood in their life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just think – so there's a, a, several ways you could look at that question or answer that question. I think one of them is I, I would not want to work for a company. I would not want to use my marketing expertise or background or experience to work for a company that wants to push product at all costs. All that we care about is the bottom line. I don't care if we cut quality corners. I don't care if these people need this or not. I don't care if we're um, being a bit untruthful or deceptive in our advertising. Just push product. I, I could not be involved with a company that I thought that was their modus operandi. Right? Um, I, I just... I think we're starting to see more people come to the realization that there's so much waste. You know, one of the big, I think one of the, the more interesting areas of um, industrial design is packaging, right? How can we make packaging that's less harmful to the environment? And you hear about how many plastic bottles, are, and I use them too, but how many plastic bottles are floating around in the oceans, and how can we make packaging that's more functional and more environmentally friendly and easier for customers to use. Um, I think that's one of the things that I've been reading a lot about is how many, especially food and consumable products now, are purchased because of the package. So um, one of my close friends, um, his wife was coming to church a while back and she was carrying this creamer. Our church, I don't know if your church has coffee bars, that's kind of the cool thing these days to have coffee mm -hmm. bars in church. And she's carrying her creamer in. And I'm like, Jennifer, what? You know, I, I couldn't help notice you're bringing your creamer. Yeah, I don't like the creamer that's, you know, here at the church. And it was in a plastic bag. And I'm like, well, what's, what's in a plastic bag for? So she pulls it out. And she's like, because this lid doesn't seal very well. And so she's like, last Sunday I brought it to church and it fell over in my car and spilled creamer into the seats of my car. And she, my husband wasn't very happy. So she's like, I now have to carry the plastic bag. So... A couple weeks later, I see her coming to church, and she's got a different creamer. 
and it's not in a plastic bag. And I'm like, hey, Jennifer, couldn't help but notice, you got a different creamer here. And she's like, yeah. Uh, I said, well, do you like this better? And she's like, nah, not really. And I said, well, was it cheaper? No, nah, not really. I said, well, why'd you buy it? And she said, because of this. And she snaps the cap down, and she's like, it doesn't leak. And I said, so you're telling me that you paid a little bit more for a product that you don't like any better because the package is a better design. She's like, yep. So there you go, right? Um, is it the functionality of the package? Is it the appearance of the package? Um, I, in my classes, I call the package the silent salesperson. Because when you're at a convenience store or a grocery store and you're in the snack aisle, what are you doing? You're looking at all the packaging. And you're trying to decide, is this one cool? And, and some of them jump out at you because it's a really good design. And you're like, well, I'll try this. And again, marketing is a battle of perceptions. And design, the aesthetic side of design, as well as the functional side of design, is a big decision factor. Yeah, definitely. And I think like packaging, being the silent salesperson, if you can make it look great and also function really well, yep. then that's that's like the winning recipe Combo. there. I agree, hundred um, percent. And I think like Apple does that in a way. You could say that their their packaging is not the simplest, um, but I think they do a good job of giving you everything that you need and making it. Uh, a presentation that lives up to the hype of, of their products. Yeah, absolutely. Think about all the unboxing videos, right? Somebody sits down and they're like, this package is kind of cool. And you either see them open and it's very functional and slick, or they're wrestling this thing, trying to cut the plastic with scissors. And So, yeah, it starts there. Design starts with the package, in my opinion. Hmm. That's really interesting. It's, it's funny. The, the creamer example, I think, has like a very interesting tie to it because... You ask somebody, what is the purpose of creamer? The purpose of creamer is to, you know, put milk into your coffee and make it taste better yeah. for the user. But then actually the purpose of the creamer for that lady was to transport it from home to church primarily. Yes. Like that was the purpose. And that actually took superiority over the actual definition of what she was actually taking to the yes, church. Yes, you're exactly right. I just think that's very interesting. And I wonder if there's any other thing where we can kind of see that carry but, over, where the actual function of a product is less important to the secondary function. Yeah. Um, well, it's another package-related story. I can tell you quickly, if you don't mind. I hate painting, painting walls. I'm just not very good at it. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a typical paint can, right, it's got that wire hanger handle, and paint cans are heavy. So a couple of years back, my wife and I were at Walmart, and I bought three cans of paint. And I'm like, you know, I'll carry these out to the car at the same time. Well, I've got one can on each finger. I'm, I'm practically dismembered by the time I get to the car because my, my fingers are hurting so bad, mm -hmm. right? And so I go up to the bedroom and I lay down my little drop cloth and I'm like, oh, I forgot the screwdriver, right? Because you've got to pry these devils open. So I go back down to the garage and I get a screwdriver and I'm prying open the whole thing and I think Hercules must have sealed this because I can't get it open and it's kind of bending, the lip's bending and I'm trying to get this stupid thing open and finally I get a little frustrated and I get a little too much torque and the lid flies off and of course it misses the drop cloth and it's paint side down and now I'm furious because i got paint everywhere and so uh, I'm, I'm not a very good painter so I'm pulling the brush out and of course when you're done the little moat, that little lip is filled with paint and so you put the lid on and it rolls down over the sides and I'm wiping it off. I'm like, what? who designed this horrible thing, right? And so then I'm in a Sherwin-Williams store not long thereafter and I see this paint that comes in a, it looks like a laundry detergent plastic bottle. 
right? It's got a nice thick handle that doesn't cut my fingers off. It's got a screw-on, screw-off lid. It's got a little spout that's angled so that when you dip the brush in and pull it off, the paint goes back inside. And I'm like, this is the paint for me. And so again, I'm buying the paint for the functionality of the package, not for the paint itself. Mm. And I'm sure the, the paint bucket has probably been the same for 100 years. Yes. And, you know, companies especially like something as utilitarian as paint, they're probably not thinking, oh, well, we should probably spend a couple million dollars redesigning the package. Yeah. But Sherwin-Williams did, and, you know, that makes their product so much more appealing. Right. And go back to the, the creamer that my friend's wife bought. It was a Nestle product, and I read, I forget, I think Nestle spends like $2 billion a year mm. on package design and functionality, and, and, and it shows. Right? Yeah. And I was thinking, like, when you were talking about the creamer bottle, I was like, well, the, the designer might not even have been thinking, oh, well, someone might be carrying this around. Yeah. But they're, like, the good design made it useful in all these other sorts of ways that, you know, they, they didn't even think about. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of where we get back to being data-informed instead of data-driven is because if you're just looking at your sales, you don't know if you're the you know, the redesigned, the better superior creamer package, the people that bought your creamer because of the package, you might think it was because it would taste better or their ads were better. So really unpacking what lies behind the data is important. Yeah, and understanding the consumer and where their pain points are. Correct. Because pain points for a lot of people are, is the package. Right. I have a little question. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's this whole, like, shoe-slash-like-hype-beast thing going on right now. And the whole concept of it is that people are spending exorbitant amounts of money on products that were actually sold at a much cheaper value, but because there's a limited amount of yep. them, the aftermarket yep. makes the price just go through the roof, and this for clothes, shoes, yep. accessories, yep. things like Absolutely. that. I don't understand it. Um, I don't know if somehow through your marketing thing that marketing experience that you could kind of shed some light on what that is or human behavior that kind of causes that sort yeah of absolutely thing. there's a really interesting book you might want to check out it's just called influence and it's written by a guy named robert caldini and one of the um, major factors in influence is the principle of scarcity and we tend to want what we can't have you know think about your parents you, know, you can have anything in here but don't touch that chocolate bar well all you want is the chocolate bar right it goes back to the garden God said you can eat off any tree except that one. Well, what does Adam and Eve want? We want that one. So there's this, this human nature, whether it's FOMO, I don't want to miss out, um, or this is the popular thing and the cool thing. When we think we can't have something, we want it even more. And I think that's kind of what Supreme and some of these brands that have these really uber expensive stuff that's limited quantities are playing on. It's that scarcity. I mean, one of my students is a sneakerhead. He confidentially told me that he has spent like $20,000 on sneakers. I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, and he's like, yeah, I got this one-of-a-kind shoe. And some people do it because that's the way they want to make money. They buy and sell and trade these things. Uh, the, the latest version of that is these you know, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, which I just don't understand at all. So I don't really get that because to me, there's nothing tangible there. So... I don't know. I think it's the scarcity thing, Evan. That's the best um, answer I have for you. And so scarcity is probably one of those marketing strategies that as 
you know, that you would shy away from because yes. of your conscience. Yeah, I think it's manipulative, and I think it, it, it causes people to um, be obsessed with it and become materialistic. Mm. Right? Well, here's something that I've been thinking about recently because I've been looking a lot at, uh, I've been just reading about cars because cars are really cool, yeah. and you look at there are these homologation specials, which are a certain amount of number of cars that a company has to make in order to race them in a lot of leagues. And so they only make 400, 400 and something of them, and they sell for huge prices, more than what they're uh, originally worth. Right. So that those sorts of homologation specials are also what allowed Audi, for example, to put four-wheel drive into a whole host of their cars. Almost every car that they make now is Quattro. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is there a place for the scarcity of some products? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I, I, I think if the whole reason for producing a limited number, if the whole reason is to make people um, want these and, and I have to have this thing and obsess because it's a limited quantity, I have some moral issues with that personally. Um, I'm sure other people don't. But that would not be something that I would want to be part of. Yeah, that's really helpful because, you know, there are these people that are shooting the moon and trying to make the absolute best product out there. Yes. And it becomes inaccessible to a lot of people, which is yes. very valuable. Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, Audi makes, they made the Quattro, but they also made, you know, the Volkswagen. Correct. Golf. Right. So they have it on both both sides of the spectrum. Right. And, and I mean, how many Mona Lisas are there? Right? There's only one Mona Lisa painting, and it wasn't painted so that it would be scarce. It was an object of skill and beauty and quality. So by necessity, you can only make a limited quantity of things like that. Right? Mm-hmm. How many Sistine chapels could you paint in your lifetime? Right? You, you couldn't do that, but the whole purpose of that was to create an item of value and beauty. It wasn't to hype people up and say, you can't have this so that I can make more money. Does that make any? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of gets to your car point. So I'm not saying that it's wrong in all instances. Hmm. Well, kind of as we wrap this up, I I have one more question for you. Um, So let's suppose hypothetically that Grove City has an industrial design program. Right. And as uh, a a marketing professor, head of marketing, the industrial design professors have invited you in to talk for, you know, 10 minutes on marketing to the, the sophomores. What do you say to them? And what are the things that you would be looking for in their work? Yeah, I think um, the couple things that I would reiterate are that it's not the best product that always wins. It's the best perceived product that wins. So trying to understand who is my target market and what perception do I want to evoke. When I am in this, if, do I want my customers to think that I'm the best product, the cheaper, or the different? Because you've got to understand what your position is, and you should design to that. And that everything in design is not, again, just appearance or how it feels. It's the functionality, right? And so those are the things that I would really drive home because there are a lot of really well-designed products, really well-produced products that have failed horrifically in the marketplace. And it was either because they didn't really understand the target market or they didn't have a clear and compelling reason for people to buy them. This is neat, but I don't really understand what it does or I don't need it. Or it was one of a number of alternatives that they had not differentiated themselves so people didn't have any real reason to understand why to buy them. So those are the things that I think it would drive home. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just kind of as we're, as we're wrapping up, we talk in, in design a lot about constraints. 
constraints on the design brief that you're working off of um, when you are going through research and when you're trying to come up with ideas. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about, do you want to be the best? Do you want to be cheaper? Do you want to be different? Mm -hmm. Um, Evan and I have talked about how in a lot of circumstances, it's better to have more constraints. That's what really squeezes the creativity out of you. And so I'm sure that a lot of designers could, uh, and design students especially, could have, you know, a, a lot more creativity driven into their product because they put marketing constraints yes. on their product, yep. not just, uh, you know, not just size constraints or, you yeah. know, anything like that. I think products that say, um, this is made for everyone, they don't have anything unique because there's, everyone's going to not like it. When I see a store that says, you know, something for everyone, that tells me most things in there I'm not going to like, right? That's the other way to look at it. So back to Steve Jobs for one last second. Is he, I was, he said, I was more proud of the things that I said no to than the things that I said yes to. Because by saying no to all of these other things that we could have done, it constrained me to focus on the one thing that I did really, really well. And I think that's very wise. Right? Mm-hmm. I think strategy is focus. Do one thing excellently rather than many things marginal. Great. Well, Dr. Scott Powell, thank you so much for your time. Uh, We really appreciated talking with you uh, from Evan and I. Um, And we will see all of you guys back on the next episode.